an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the big snow of 1916 almost destroyed one of Seattle's earliest landmarks. And just the sheer weight of all that wet snow brought the dome crashing to the floor of the cathedral, February 2nd, 1916. And then, from the archives, revisiting a beloved earworm from an old department store. 20, 30, 40 percent, one day only at the Bon Marche. Prices are dropping to the basement. But first... Let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. His quick look at the stories behind local places and things and land formations. And this week, he's been a big friend to naval aviators in the northwest for more than 50 years. He's called Whidbey Island Man. (laughs) Yeah, this is an aviation story. It's about a geographic feature and esoteric nickname that dates to the early days of radar on military aircraft, maybe the 50s or the 60s. The setting for the story is, not surprisingly, Naval Air Station Whidbey Island. A guy named Richard Hart grew up in the Seattle area, went to Mount Rainier High School in the UW. He's 74 now, retired after serving in the Navy and working as a commercial airline pilot. As a young aviator who had trained in Pensacola, he got assigned to Whidbey Island in 1971. He was already qualified as a naval aviator, but since he was the new guy at Oak Harbor, Richard Hart had to do some training flights in the area in a Grumman A6 intruder. I had an instructor, bombardier navigator in the right seat, and I was flying in the left seat. And he said, okay, I got it. We'd be all in man. I kind of went, what? And uh, he said, look at the radar here. And he, we were about 130, 140 miles out. And uh, he showed it to me. And I, I said, well, I'll be darned. It really is. It looks like a man down there. So Whidbey Island Man, that on those radar screens, land was light, water was dark, and the shape between Whidbey Island and Camino Island was a silhouette of a person, which the Navy guys called Whidbey Island Man. Now, we have an old aeronautical chart at my northwest that Richard Hart has marked up that shows this phenomenon very clearly. Essentially, Oak Harbor and Crescent Harbor form the head, Penn Cove is an arm, Holmes Harbor is a leg, and Saratoga Passage is the other leg, the torso and the other arm too. The body's maybe 40 miles long, the arms are maybe 15 miles long, the legs are 20 miles long. Now, one more thing. Not unlike that Auburn Railroad engineer who tutored his steam whistle to let his wife know he was almost home, sighting Whidbey Island Man on the radar inspired a similar scheme for Richard Hart and the other pilots. If we had a good guy on the phone in the duty office, we'd radio in to him and say, hey, can you call the wife or some guys call the girlfriend and have them come pick me up? We're going to be there in about a half hour. Now, I think Whidbey Island is a pretty esoteric thing. I don't think it's been adopted by civil or commercial pilots. It seems like it's purely if you're in the Navy. So maybe in those many decades, maybe only a few thousand aviators ever used it. I also asked Richard Hart if Whidbey Island is visible to the naked eye since he's done all that other flying. He said it probably is, but you'd have to be at at least 10,000 feet, have really clear weather, and be maybe 30 to 50 miles south of Whidbey to see it, Mm -hmm. or see him, I guess. Now, last thing, I asked him directly, and Richard Hart, who because of where he lives is a Whidbey Island man himself, he swore to me this was not some elaborate practical joke designed to fool me and the Cairo Radio listeners. Whidbey Island man is a thing. Yes. Well, if you look at the map, it's it's there. Uh, I mean, I, I think I see him. His his right hand is basically grabbing Lacana, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Reaching over, he's sort of or like he's, he's like spread eagle, spreads arms yeah. spread out wide, touch from all the way from Whidbey over to Camino. He should be called Whidbey Island slash Camino Island man because the Camino yes. Island coastline forms part of his body too. And once you mentioned it, I started looking at it, that's all I see now. <laughs> you can't unsee Whidbey Island no. man. That's true. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire, it's so delightful. Hmm. That sounds like Dean Martin. <laughs> He's Catholic, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. One of the biggest winter storms to strike the Northwest arrived 106 years ago this week and nearly destroyed one of Seattle's earliest landmarks. It certainly forever changed its architectural profile, I'll tell you that. Our resident historian Felix Spinell is here with a look back at one specific piece of damage done by the big snow of 1916. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Yeah, we've had February snow in the northwest in the recent past, I think even last year. But nothing quite like the big snow of 1916. There was already a lot of snow that January, and then nearly two feet fell between February 1st and February 2nd. And this was all over western Washington. Um... And sometime during the day on February 2nd of that year, it's 106 years ago today, or hashtag OTD, as the kids would say, the temperature was around 32, and a mix of rain and snow began to fall. And that snow doesn't melt right away. It absorbs the rain and gets very heavy. Now, one of the places where that heavy, wet snow really took a toll was at St. James Cathedral on First Hill in Seattle. It was a landmark that dominated the skyline in the days before the Smith Tower. And when the cathedral debuted in December 1907, Along with its distinctive matching towers, it also had a dome, which did not survive the big snow of 1916. So a few weeks ago, I took a little history tour to an area where the public is generally not allowed. My guide was Corinna Laughlin, pastoral assistant for liturgy at St. James Cathedral. So we're in the attic of St. James Cathedral, and the whole area that you can see with all of these wires and wooden walkways was put in in 1994. And it's a, a space between the ceiling of the cathedral and the roof. And it's a place where you can really get a sense of where the dome was and um, how it's been rebuilt over the years. So uh, let's come up the stairs here. Little NPR sound there of the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> <That>, uh, <laughs> Very effective. That, <laughs> the space was created by remodeling the cathedral 30 years ago, but it also was really close to where the dome used to be. Now, the dome was about 45 feet in diameter, topped out about 110 feet above the ground, in the old photos that I've seen, which I've tweeted out this morning, and I've got it at my northwest, it looks not unlike the dome at Holy Names Academy on Capitol Hill. But back to what happened on February 2nd, 1916. This is Corinna Laughlin. The snow piled up around the base of the dome. Um, they say it snowed continuously for something like 27 hours that year. And just the sheer weight of all that wet snow brought the dome crashing to the floor of the cathedral, February 2nd, 1916. So February 2nd is a big feast day in the church. It was called the Purification back in 1916. Now we call it the Presentation of the Lord. Uh, with, and it's traditionally the day for the blessing of candles. But fortunately, Seattle shut down <laughs> in 1916, just like it does now when it snows. And so nobody was in the cathedral, so nobody was injured. But the cathedral... Um, suffered serious damage um, because the collapse of the dome took a lot of the ceiling with it. So basically the building had to be closed uh, for more than a year and essentially rebuilt. You know, And you heard the best news of all there. The cathedral is empty. Nobody was hurt right. or killed when the dome collapsed in the afternoon. That's just amazing. As to why it happened, there were at least a few contributing factors. Um, 
I talked with Jeff Berman, a professor in civil engineering over the UW. He said steel manufacturing wasn't quite perfected yet in 1907. Some of the engineering reports mention a failed steel truss that was found in the rubble. Those reports also mention a possible disconnect between the New York blueprints from the famous architectural firm of Heinz and Lafarge, who designed the cathedral, and the local construction crews who built it. But Professor Berman says the main culprit was all that snow. They they actually weighed the snow after the collapse and, uh, you know, concluded that it was very heavy snow Um, because it was saturated with rain, (laughs) which makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, You know, if you're you're a skier, you know this quite well, right? Uh, Cascade concrete, right? Yeah, and there's actually a term used to describe snow made heavy by absorbing rain. It's called the rain-on-snow surcharge. (laughs) <laughs> and in 1916, the snow on the roof around the dome weighed something like 28 to 35 pounds per cubic foot for a total estimated load of 30 tons. And it apparently made quite a sound when it all let go. Nobody actually saw it. They heard it, though. Now, on my tour, I also got to see parts of the old 1907 ceiling that had been hidden since right after the dome collapse and the pyramid-shaped skylight that was built in 1994 in the exact spot where the dome used to be. You can see the um, simple painting that is supposed to evoke coffering. It's supposed to look like coffering from the ground. Oh, wow. But you can also see how much higher up this is than where the ceiling is now. Yeah. So this is from 1907. Um, and the dome um, was about a little bit bigger than the skylight is now, the opening is now, the, uh, the oculus as we call it. Um, but the whole ceiling was much higher. And so this is kind of an interesting place to see a little bit of what the decoration looked like inside the cathedral. It was really cool to see that old ceiling decoration hidden behind the, the ceiling now. It was very cool. Now, we also bumped into Father Michael Ryan, the pastor of St. James Cathedral. He told me a story about his 1916 predecessor, Pastor Monsignor William Noonan. Pastor Noonan had a certain sensitivity, and he tried to control the, shall we say, messaging in the wake of the collapse. I think he must have been aware that when St. James was built, some of the people in the city would have thought it was an overreach. There weren't many Catholics here, and they built this largest church in the city and crowning the hill with it, and then eight years later it collapses on itself. So uh, his first thought was, how is this going to play out in the public? So, And it's well attested. He had the editor of the Catholic newspaper next to him, Bill O'Connell. He said, Willem, not a word to the press. And, uh, of course, the Seattle had three dailies in those days, the PI, the Times, and the Star, and it was the front page of every one of them. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, early days of uh, photojournalism, but there's some amazing photographs, particularly captured by the PI photographers, of looking down from the top of the roof into the, the rubble below. Um, you know, and they, they tried to, they planned to build an even bigger dome to replace it, but they couldn't really gin up enthusiasm for that. Yeah. And so eventually they decided to just build a roof, and it took about a year, and the cathedral reopened in March 1917. But Quite a lot of damage there that happened on that day 106 years ago. Yeah. I hosted the 100th anniversary, I don't know if you call it a celebration, but uh, commemoration of, oh, wow. uh, of what happened. And uh, it was, it was uh, quite a show, actually. They read the, uh, we read the headlines of the, <laughs> of the newspapers, and then the organ played a musical simulation of what it sounded like when oh, the dome wow. crashed. And, of course, you know, they have two organs in that church, one in the front, one in the back. And when you open up all those pipes, it does indeed sound (laughs) and almost feel uh, like an earthquake. But I'm uh, I'm a little envious because you got to go in the – I've never been in the attic, and I've never been in the bell towers either. Usually when I – the first thing I do when I see an old church is one is, you know, try to climb to the bell towers, but – God, that would be cool. Yeah, the attic is amazing. Seeing that up close, that that, where the ceiling is still kind of damaged from 1916 really just blew me away. They have a sprinkler system up there now, I understand, after Notre Dame. 
They do. Yeah. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com, and uh, you can find all those features right there. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, boat show season got us thinking about one of our favorite old Seattle earworms. Work all night and a drink a rum. I am shocked that Harry Belafonte would rip off a Bon Marche commercial, but that's exactly what he did. <laughs> Joining us now is our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, with a look back at what is probably one of the most uh, famous ad jingles in Seattle. It's got to be in the top five, I would say. I mean, the excuse. I like to find excuses to do stories that I like, and it was 12 years ago today, this very day, that the Seattle Times announced that the Bond, what was then called Bond Macy's. Who keeps track of that? I do. It was it was called Bond Macy's for about a year after being the Bon Marché since 1890, named after a great store in Paris. The Nordhoff family started it. All kinds of great history you can find online if you like that kind of thing. But... In 2004, they, they did away with Bond Macy's and said in March 2005, it's going to be just bon, just Macy's. So they could consolidate all the stuff like regional promotions and marketing and all sorts of stuff. It had been owned by a big company since the 20s. The Bon yeah. Marche was not a local company, but it was run locally for about 75 years. And one thing great local companies do are great local advertising campaigns. So it was a great excuse to look back 25 years ago to 1991. Damn! My name is Brian Walter. I used to be the broadcast production director at the Bon Marche during the early 90s. So at that time, I was working with different uh, freelancers, and there's uh, one freelancer. His name is Palmer Pedersen, and uh, I hired him and said, okay, you know, see if you can come up with, you know, a good idea to what to do with our one-day sale. So they had a uh, sale that ran only one day only and just seemed to be fun and make sense to put that to music. And I'll never forget the, uh, the, when he came in and he had these storyboards and he had draw them out and he put them out there and he said, okay, picture this. And then he started singing and he was singing horribly. I mean, he is a super creative guy, but no one's going to hire him to sing. Day, oh, one day say, oh, one day only at the Bon Marche. <laughs> and I remember at that moment thinking, this is either the most brilliant idea ever, or it's the stupidest idea ever, and I'm not quite sure which one it is. 20, 30, 40%, one day only at the Bon Marche. Prices are dropping to the basement. One day only at the Bon Marche. So we said, it's like, okay, let's let's go ahead and produce it. So we went ahead and did one TV spot. And then we had uh, one 60-second radio commercial. And it was an instant breakout hit. This Monday only, go to the Bon Marche for big, big savings for back to school and more. Then, you know, then we just started evolving it over the years, but we just kept on panning it because... Everybody knew it. Now, you would say, did everybody love it? No, not everybody loved it, but everybody knew it. Greg Valman Thomas, that's the guy. He's an extremely talented uh, local theater actor. Everything was uh, local. 
The only thing that wasn't local is that since uh, we didn't want legal to come after me and lose my job, is I had to you know, negotiate the rights and actually pay the you know the Harry Harry Belafonte people you know who owned that arrangement of the song. We had to pay them twenty five thousand dollars a year for the rights to that. We coughed up the bucks, and it was so so worth it. There was a whole generation of kids who were, went to elementary school, and that's where you learn the Banana Boat song. But for the, the teachers, for the first time ever, were having to compete with the ubiquity of our frequency of running commercials. And uh, uh, I remember getting a voicemail from a teacher. She goes, we're teaching, you know, the kids the Banana Boat song. So here we are, first graders. And we're like, okay, kids. And it's, you know, come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me bananas. And then all the kids in unison chime, one day only at the bar. <laughs> so if I'm going to put something on my tombstone, that like that's it. Uh, Along with Palmer Pedersen, helped shepherded Deo into the earworms of, you know, the Northwest. I still call nice. it the Bond sometimes. Oh, I always Is call that it the bond. Bad? Yeah, It's I, like calling the food circus. The I thing do at the, it without yeah, realizing. That's right. It's not even circus. in protest. I just say, like, hey, I'm going to go to the Bond. My husband's like, yeah. where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I want to say, this is from a listener. A Cairo listener named Tim Williams suggested this story. We get the yeah. best story ideas from our listeners. So if you've got more story ideas, send them our way, please. Yes, please do. Because uh, as, as extensive as, as uh, Felix's historical commercial calendar is, <laughs> it does not include everything. <laughs> Thanks, Felix. Thank you. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's rainy in Seattle, baby. Please can I come home? signing off and I remember their words they said uh, and now our day is done if we have pleased by entertaining and instructing we are glad and may the good God above guard and keep you through the night we will greet you again at 7 o'clock this is KOMO Fisher's Blend Station Incorporated we operate under the authorization of the Federal Radio Commission. Como Radio News. Stay connected, stay informed, and check back two, three, four times a day for the news that affects you, plus traffic and weather every 10 minutes on the force. The Northwest News Station. This is Como News. KOMO Seattle. KOMO FM Oakville. Good night.